Hi, everyone. You're listening to Who I Met Today, and I'm your host, Pam Lamp. I'm all about doing one tiny new thing every single day. And on this podcast, I invite you to come along with me and discover something new through conversations with people from all walks of life. I hope you enjoy listening to these interviews and exploring new territory with me. For more people stories and episodes, please visit my website, whoimettoday.com. My guest today is one of my very favorite cookbook authors, Anne Byrne. Just in time for Thanksgiving and the cooking season, Anne is here to chat about her cookbooks and her secrets to successful cast iron cooking. Welcome, Anne. Thank you for coming today. It's great to be here, Pam. Thank you. Well, Anne, I'm excited to talk with you. I love all your cookbooks, and I think you've had a very interesting food career. I know that you graduated from the University of Georgia and began writing for the Atlanta newspaper. Then you went to Paris to study French cooking, which sounds quite glamorous. And I wonder why you decided to do that. I decided to go to Paris and go to cooking school because I was reviewing restaurants in Atlanta at a time when the whole restaurant scene in Atlanta in the early 1980s was booming and Hartsfield Airport was expanding and just so many flavors from around the world were coming into Atlanta and the restaurant scene was just growing. And so I was asked to kind of step in and review restaurants, which I really enjoyed because it was a mix of, you know, sort of high-end restaurants, Ritz-Carlton, as well as, you know, a, a little Greek restaurant or a Thai restaurant on Beaufort Highway. But I really felt pressure that someone like myself, who was not trained to be a chef, was, you know, was being critical, perhaps, about food that was someone else's livelihood. And also, I felt like that I needed to have a really good foundation of what, you know, the sauces were and how, you know, French cooking was put together so that I could dine and I could write with authority. And then I have a good friend, Natalie Debris, who has been a mentor for for many years. And she said, you know, you're not ever going to be at the level you want to be as a food writer and until you get out of the country. I only went over to Paris for three months and traveled around Europe a good part of that time. Took some cooking classes in Italy from Joe Batoya in Rome. And it was just a great experience. But I had to go back. I had to go back to work. <laughs> I had rent to make on my apartment. I had a lease I had already signed. And and the little, the fabulous little apartment that I was able to get in the seventh arrondissement in Paris, you know. It was only for a short period of time. But what a perfect time in your life to do that. So how much longer were you in Atlanta before you came to Nashville and worked for the Tennessean? Oh, I was in Atlanta another eight years, maybe. Oh, a while. Yes. I left Atlanta in 1993, which was about the time the uh, Atlanta was about to host the Olympics. A lot of big changes were being made, but I had reunited with an old sweetheart and he had asked me to marry him, and he was living in England. So I did. And so I left Atlanta, moved to England for about a year, and then John and I moved back to Nashville in 1994. You were the food editor for the Nashville newspaper, and I love the story of how your first cookbook came to be. Can you share that with us? Yes. 
Well, I was writing about once a week for the Tennessean. It was a great job to have, you know, as a mom, because I could work around children. And I really wanted to keep my hands in things and write. And so, you know, I thought of this idea where I could take some of my mother's recipes, you know, that involved a cake mix and kind of use my strategies from being a food writer and editor and then really pull together some nice icings and frostings, you know, like the ganache that I learned to make in Paris and sort of pull it all together so that people could have this before we even used the word hack, it was really just this cheat that had been, people have been doing it for years and for generations of taking a box of cake mix and doctoring it up with a sour cream and an extra egg or orange juice. And so, I, yeah, I wrote a story about it. And then at the end of the story, put a little line and I said, you know, these are my recipes. Do you have any recipes that involve a cake mix? And if you do... Send them to me here, you know, at the Tennessean. I mean, this was before email. This was so, you know, it's amazing. And I had a mailing address and we went on vacation. And when I came back a week later, I had 500 letters on my desk stacked up for me to open. And it was cake mix recipes from people all across Middle Tennessee. So then I wrote some sequels of that story. And I actually interviewed some of the people. It was so much fun. Some of the people whose recipes I thought were really good. And then the, I noticed that those stories started going out on the wire service, UP, uh, AP. And they started appearing in newspapers across the country. So then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, maybe if this is so well received, you know, maybe there's a book here. I had already been talking to an agent in Chicago about a completely different book. And so I said, Nancy, you know, this idea has come to me. I mean, what do you think? And she said, I get it. And I got in touch with food editor friends across the country. And I said, what would you think if I wrote a book that just had cake mix recipes? <laughs> and everybody said, you do it because, you know, those are always the most requested recipes for a newspaper food writer. So that is how the cake mix doctor was born. I remember the Cake Mix Doctor. It was published in 1995, <laughs> I want to say. No, it was December of 99. And I remember it because they wanted me to go to QVC for a launch. And it was during Christmas. And I was like, I'm sorry, I can't do that. So I launched in January of 2000. But it was published in December. I remember seeing your smiling face. We lived in Houston at the time. And I okay. saw that book at Target and the bookstores and Costco. And then when I moved to Nashville and you're here, <laughs> it was just fun to put the face with the name and the cookbook that I had. And now you have, and this is one of my favorite books, I'll call it a sequel to The Cake Mix Doctor, which is an updated version of that same cookbook mm -hmm. using recipes that have more up-to-date ingredients and they right. recognize the different cake mix sizes that the manufacturers all have. And I just think it's a great cookbook. I've made so many things in there. In fact, I'm a big fan of all your cookbooks, which I will put in the show notes. I'll list them all. Oh, that's great. Because that one's a little different name. It's called A New Take on Cake. So it's not, I think, unless you know my name and unless you kind of see the cake mix doctor on the front, a lot of people don't really realize that that book is the redo of the cake mix doctor. Oh, it's a great book. And I've made so many of the cakes. But I think even if you don't like to cook, 
many of your cookbooks are history lessons. You know, I'm speaking mm-hmm. specifically to American cake and American cookie. Mm-hmm. You you give the history of a Girl Scout cookie recipe and peanut butter cookies and snickerdoodles and, oh, what's another one? Tavern biscuits. But can you share with us mm-hmm. all the history behind one of your favorite cookies? The most surprising, I believe, were the, like on the black and white, some of the cookies that I associated with being Jewish were actually from Eastern Europe and Germany before U.S. So you think of something like the black and white cookie, you think of New York City and delis or whatever, but that is a very European and Eastern European and German cookie. And then I think too, the Girl Scout cookies, you know, the first ones were actually baked out of the home in 1922, 1923. And they were baked by the girls and their mothers and they were sort of wrapped up a dozen at a time in wax paper and they sold them by the roll. I just love that story. I, I love that story because can you imagine doing that now, baking something in your home <laughs> and going out and selling it? Well, it would be impossible because nobody would buy them. They would be, you know, we we're so fearful of purchasing food, I think, from other people. Yeah, it would be sad. Although, Although, I mean, we do still have bake sales, and I think that something like that could work. I don't see why a roll of cookies couldn't work at a school bake sale, a neighborhood bake sale, church bake sale, especially those little thin, thin sugar wafers, which is what those were. To me, cookies are just filled with so many wonderful stories and cakes, too. And I didn't get into any of that until, you know, my kids were out of the house. And I had kind of done my stint as the cake mix doctor. And I had cooked busy recipes for busy people through the dinner doctor. But American cake and then American cookie, those were really my books. And I could dive into those. And it was fascinating. And that really set me on a different path as a writer. Made me realize that People want more than just a recipe, that there are so many recipes out there. What is it about a new recipe, you know, that is going to really be interesting? I agree with that. Yeah, it's often the story behind the recipe. I love reading the story behind the recipe. Well, Anne, I'd like to zero in today on Skill at Love. I think that was published in 2019. 150 recipes made in a cast iron skillet. And I must admit, I grew up in the Midwest. My mom used a cast iron skillet all the time. So I just thought that's something everyone should have. So Mm -hmm. I got married. I bought a cast iron skillet. I used it a couple of times and then promptly stuffed it into the far-reaching corners of my cupboard. I didn't know. I struggled with it, and I didn't see what all the fuss was about. But when your book came out, That encouraged me to dig my skillet out and try again, and I'm now an official fan. So let's talk a little bit about the cast iron skillet, though, because I think it Mm -hmm. does take some lessons to get to use it right. Mm -hmm. Why Mm -hmm. should cooks use a cast iron skillet, first of all, rather than a different type of pan? Oh, for several reasons. I mean, it's very sustainable. It's a skillet that you'll buy once and use forever. And then pass on to your children. It'll get passed on to their children. So it's an heirloom and it's very sustainable. Secondly, 
it just cooks food well. And that's why I wrote Skillet Love because I wanted to know what it was about that skillet that was made of iron that made food taste so good. Was it the chemical composition? Was it what happens when it hits heat? Is it the presence of oil? That is the curiosity I had when I wrote Skillet Love and I went to the people at Lodge and I said, just explain this to me. I want to see how the skillet's made. Tell me, why does it work? And it is all about the iron in the skillet that gets hot enough to sear food, which translates to flavor. But it also is about the coating, the natural coating that you are able to get onto that skillet after years and years of love and use. And love, the key part, love is, is to treat your skillet well and to care for it and not shove it to the back of the cabinet. Not, I, had an, I had a neglected skillet when I started using you, you it. You were lucky you didn't have, I have to ask where you were living because in a lot of places, if you pulled it back out, it would have been rusty just from the humidity of the kitchen. Well, I was in Houston, Texas. Okay. So yes, pretty, yes pretty it, humid. It, it was rusty and I cleaned it up. But let me ask you, you said it gets hot enough to sear. And mm-hmm. I know I read in your book that a hot sear was kind of one of the tricks to a cast iron skillet. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't put the food in. You put the oil in the skillet and then you wait for the oil to heat up and then you put the food in. How do you mm-hmm. know when it is hot enough to put the food in to get that sear? You actually put the skillet on the heat dry. And then oh. if you want a hot seared steak or you want hot seared fish, roasting fish that might have some skin on, which is nice, like salmon or trout that you can buy that has skin on, get it on the burner dry. And depending on if you have electric or gas, you know, it depends on my gas stove. It takes about four minutes, you know, medium high heat. What I look for is for the skillet to start smoking a little bit. And when it smokes and you know, it's hot, Then I add the oil, whatever the recipe says. And most of the time, it's just like a teaspoon of oil. You essentially are just glazing the hot skillet with some oil. And this is where you want to use like a neutral oil, cottonseed oil, canola oil, those kind of clear oils. Avocado oil is a good one. And then, then your food, your steak or your fish goes in, but you may have seasoned it a little bit with some dry seasoning, not wet. So no marinades. This is just, you know, salt, pepper or a seasoning salt, whatever you love. And it goes into the skillet and you leave it alone. Do not touch, do not move it for at least two minutes. Heat is still on. And what that does is the proteins in the steak or the fish will sort of firm up and it will release itself from the skillet. If you watch chefs cook over high heat in restaurants, they do exactly the same thing. They may not be using cast iron, they may be using carbon steel, but you see, if you look back in the kitchen, you're going to see all burners on and you're going to see all kinds of skillets all over that stove. And, you know, those skillets are hot and that food is going in and it is being seared. Now, if it's a thick cut of fish, so back to you let it sit for two minutes, then you flip it, hold the fish or the steak in the air. I know this sounds sort of strange, but it's to let the skillet heat back up again. And then you flip it and cook it on the other side about two minutes. Interesting. If the fish or the steak is 
thin. That's all the cooking you need. Turn off the heat, stick an instant rate thermometer in there. If it's 130, I mean, will it? You're cooking, looking for a medium rare steak, you want 135. But the internal temperature will continue to rise. If it's thicker, if it's one and a half inches or more, you know, then you have to either, like they do in the restaurants, take that big piece of halibut that's still in the pan, it's seared on both sides, and put it in the oven. They may put a pat of butter on it, they probably do, and then (laughs) it goes in the oven. And then it's cooked until it's just flaky. But you can do the same thing with your oven, but it's the reverse sear, where you actually start a thick steak in a low oven, I believe it's 225, and then you get it to 115. And once it has cooked to 115, get it out and just sear it in your cast iron skillet. And you will have a beautiful, medium rare, thick ribeye steak or filet. You know, my son, who's 25, he was at home when I was working on this book. He was in high school when I was working on that book. And, you know, John was fascinated by this project. It was like, finally, mom, you're working on something that I'm interested in. You know, <laughs> no more it's cakes. not involving. No yeah. more cakes. Exactly. And he was fascinated. So it was really fun to have him, you know, and we would try different variations on the steak. We would try trout. We would go outside and compare things on the grill. We would use the cast iron skillet on the grill, which is a really great way to especially cook fish. You don't like the smell of fishy odors in your house cook with a cast iron skillet on your grill because that gets so hot. It's just phenomenally hot and it just sears with just in a minute and a half. It's seared and then you flip it and it sears on the other side. But, you know, it's really, I I loved working in that book. Pizza, I mean, there was so many things now that I cook in a cast iron skillet that I had never really, had never cooked before. Chocolate, Chocolate chip cookie skillet. That's right. Even, a, of course, a dessert chapter. That's right. Now, let me ask you. So no matter what you've made in the skillet, vegetables, mm-hmm. fish, a steak, a dessert, what do you do to clean it? Well, the first thing you do, regardless of what it is, that sticky chocolate chip cookie or the real saucy, sticky chicken, chicken thighs, you pour some water in there, warm water from the tea kettle or from the tap. And let it just sit in the skillet until you can get to it, you know, a couple minutes. And then I turn the heat on low underneath it. And you let those bits of food and pieces release themselves. And you can use like a plastic silicone spatula to help you kind of move things off the side, a wooden spoon, anything that's not abrasive, nothing metal. And you just kind of work around and stir and you get those bits and pieces out, pour it into the disposal, or if you don't have a garbage disposal, you can strain those out, put them in the trash, and then pour off hot water. And then look at what you're you're dealing with. A lot of times, it's gone. You know, that's most of it. Run hot water in it and get a scouring brush or sponge, but not steel wool. And the best kind of spongy type thing is called a wringer, and it's actually a metal it's like a square of like chain mail. Chain it's link, like a yeah. yeah. Chain link, yeah. And there's all kinds of large sales wine, but the one I have was a gift from a friend and I've bought some since and you can get them on Amazon. They're called The Ringer and I love it. And I keep that hanging up where I hang my apron 
So I will just run that around the hot skillet, run warm water from the tap. That does it. Sometimes if I've got a lot of flavors going on, if it's fish or I feel like if it's something real acidic in there, like a blackberry cobbler, something that I feel like might eat away at the finish on my skillet, I will put a drop or two of soap in there, dish soap, and then kind of use that to suds up. Then you dry off the skillet and I put it back on low heat and we'll rub, get this, a dab of Crisco in it. Just, I mean. Oh, really? As big as my fingernail, tiny bit. Okay. And let that melt. And then I will buy Crisco, either a small can or in the sticks, just for this purpose. Turn off the heat, paper towel, just wipe it all out. But that is like moisturizer on your skin. I mean, it protects the skillet and then let the skillet cool and then store it. And I always store at room temperature. I mean, if you've got a rack that you can hang your skillets on, that's fantastic. If you don't, can it just have a permanent resting place at the back of your stove? I have a cherry cabinet that was my mother's that does not go all the way up very high. And it was a dish cabinet of hers. So I've got stacks of of my cast iron skillets on top of that. I can reach them pretty well. What about the skillet that maybe has not been as cared for as yours, Mm -hmm. but I won't mention a name, (laughs) and it becomes a little sticky? How do I get it back to its shiny black, non-sticky? If it's sticky, it's had too much oil on it and been stored that way. It's not dried off oil or the oil was never heated. So what makes a coating and a finish, a nice one on a cast iron skillet, is oil plus heat. And that's why cast iron skillet that fries chicken, that fries okra, it's going to be the blackest skillet in the kitchen. It's going to be shiny and beautiful because it has had fat and it has had heat. And that in combination creates the polymer that protects the skillet and makes your skillet naturally non-stick. But if you find a sticky skillet, that means there's oil present, but it hasn't been heated. It hasn't been heated or too much oil has been in the skillet when it was stored. So if I was doing that, I would probably get some hot water in it. I put some water in it and I'd get it over to the stove and I'd just let it simmer. Just hot water, let it simmer in there to see if I can get some of that grease off of that skillet into the water and then get rid of it. I might even use a dab of soap just to kind of counteract the grease, just to dab a little bit, use the wringer, suds it around, and then I would cook with it, get some heat on it, you know, whether it's sear a steak in it, roast some carrots in it, do something, roast potatoes in it, get some oil in the skillet and let it get hot, whether it's in the oven or on top of the stove, and then go through the process I said on how to clean the skillet and care for it and just make sure that it's dry when it's stored. I'll try that. Well, I use mine a lot. And with your recommendations, I bet that it's in pristine shape when I pass it on to one of my granddaughters. (laughs) (laughs) I'll get it it all ready for her. And what other kitchen tools do you like other than your cast iron skillets? I'm pretty old school. I guess that's why I wrote a book on cast iron skillets. I am definitely old school. And I tend to use the same 
item over and over and over until you just can't use it anymore. So I love my Cuisinart and the KitchenAid, of course. I've had that KitchenAid for like 20 years. The mixer you're talking about? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Cuisinart, you're talking about the food processor. Food processor, yeah. The, I mean, those are on my counter. I use them daily. But as far as like little tools, I mean, I guess it's going to be the microplane. I don't know what we did without microplane. I feel like I love it. It saves my knuckles from being shredded. I love to just sit it right on top of a bowl flat and just, you know, let some lemon zest go into a sauce, into a salad, into a salad dressing. I just love the microplane. And then I'm a real fan of wooden spoons. I've probably got 40 wooden spoons in a basket sitting on the counter because I've got flat spoons that I like for stirring custards because they can get all the way to the edge of the pan. And I've got more long-handled spoons. If you're working with something that's really hot, like we make this toffee at Christmas and it gets up to 280, 310 and you're still stirring it, it gets hot on your hands with a normal spoon. So I've got some longer handled wooden spoons I use for that. What do you like to bake with your little granddaughter? We like to bake cupcakes. We like to bake cookies, I think. There are two, the recipes in American Cookie, Kathleen's sugar cookies, we like. That is my granddaughter's mother. So that is my daughter. That's the recipe that I made with my daughter when she was young. And it's just a really easy four ingredient sugar cookie recipe that you can make the dough ahead of time, like the night before. It actually kind of, that time in the fridge helps hydrate the dough so the cookies bake more evenly. And then once you, you know, when baking with a little person, I mean, it just helps to have certain things done ahead. So, because all they really want to do is decorate, cut sure. out and decorate. Sure, so. the sprinkles and the sparkles. Are you cooking for Thanksgiving? Yes, I am. We, um, well, we always cook in some way for Thanksgiving, but whether we have everybody here, but this will be one of those years that everybody's home. So we'll be cooking a lot. You know, I'll do the turkey and the cornbread dressing, which we always do. I make the dressing, I'll make the gravy. We'll probably make some cranberry sauce homemade ahead of time. I like to uh, have something fresh and really vibrant. So we sometimes I've been doing a uh, salad also that goes with like sort of lettuce leaves with slices of mango and different really beautiful fruit. I think is really nice, especially in November, something fresh. And then like a homemade oil dressing, which is kind of like a poppy seed, but it's not as sweet. So I love that. And then I like to let the, and we always mashed potatoes and sweet potatoes, and then let the other people kind of help with the vegetables because I feel like they, I like other people's vegetables and I am not going to do green bean casserole and I'm <laughs> not going to cook. <laughs> I'm not cooking green beans at Thanksgiving. We, my mother did, but I feel like the best green beans are in the summer when you are they're right off the plant and you've picked them and cooked them. So I don't really like green beans in November, but I do like all the root vegetables. So I want Brussels sprouts and I want somebody to cook them a new way. And so I think it's really fun for my daughters to cook, my son to cook. Sometimes he'll smoke a turkey. So we'll have one roasted turkey and one smoked turkey. And then my husband always makes scalloped oysters. Oh, yum. And that's what he grew up with, having those alongside the turkey. So those are nice. 
And then, you know, pretty standard on desserts, pecan pie. This year, I'm going to do a sweet potato pie instead of pumpkin. I like it better. I think it's more flavorful. And I, depending on how many people you have, I think it's nice to have a cake. <laughs> I, <laughs> of I, I know, course. I know you have to have a cake, Anne. <laughs> right. Well, I think it's festive. I, mean, I get that Thanksgiving is about pies and, you know, it's pies day, but but there's really, there's just something celebratory about a cake, like a German chocolate cake or a um, Italian cream cake. Oh, you know, I've made that. Coconut. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a great Thanksgiving cake because it's white, it's beautiful, but you've got all these pecans and that's really a fall flavor. So I do like that cake. Tell us about your next book. Well, I just, uh, yeah, some wrapped up the, um, it's called Baking in the American South. I finished it this summer and I loved it. It is a big book. It is the story of baking in the South. 14 states, 200 recipes, most of those untold stories. So you're going to hear from people that you might not have heard from in Southern baking. And I felt like not only was this a book that just hugely interested me from just personally growing up in the South, but also being a journalist, but I felt like it was a book that nobody had written and needed to be written so that we can get a full story on the recipes, the cornbread, the biscuits, you know, the custards, the pies and all that have come out of Southern baking and and it was a natural extension, too, because for the past two and a half years, I've been writing a newsletter on Substack called Between the Layers. And that was where I dove into topics. They're food-related, yes, but they also sort of intersect with life and culture and people and places. And that was exactly what I was able to kind of use that mindset in baking in the American South because we just focus on the South and learn about recipes that I had never heard of before. It was great fun, really great fun. I look forward to it. And when does that come out? Labor Day of 24. Okay. I always like to ask my guests, as you know, what one new thing they've done lately or discovered. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Well, it's certainly new to me, but it's not new to everybody. I have revisited tennis. And I have revisited bridge and I have revisited yoga and all of those three recently, but they were things that I had done at another time in my life. And either I put it on the shelf and said, I don't have time for it, or I had an injury and stopped. And I think that I have just loved it. I have loved now picking up the tennis racket again and playing with an older group of ladies who have beautiful tennis strokes. I have loved going to yoga classes and take classes from a ballet dancer from the Nashville Ballet for posture and strength. And my mother was an ace bridge player and all of my aunts were great bridge players. And I just feel this personal responsibility to pick up the cards again. So, Plus bridge is such a great game for maintaining your mental health. I've heard, I don't know how to play and that's on my list of things to do because I've heard it's hard. You have to work at it. It's not an easy thing to learn. It's not easy and you're exactly right. But you know what? It's social. And I think that 
that is what, you know, that's the good part. And that's probably why bridge has lasted so long is because it is social and it gets people together. So, Well, Anne, I thank you so much for being here today. I loved talking with you and I wish you and your family a very happy Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you, Pam. Same to you. And that's it for today's show. Thanks so much to Anne for joining me. Whatever your plans are this holiday, whether you are cooking or not, I wish all of you a very happy and safe Thanksgiving. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, I hope you'll listen to other episodes and spread the word about this new show. A huge thank you to Brian at Top Tier Audio for his advice and guidance. And thanks to you for tuning in. And remember, I'd love to hear from you if you discover a fun new thing. My email is pam at whoimettoday.com.